Matt, I'm glad you got to experience the wedding world. Uh, we have, as pastors, we have lots of wedding stories. My very first wedding uh, had a uh, modesty rail that was not fastened to the floor, and the um, mothers came up to light the unity candle on the other side of the modesty rail. And as one of them walked away, she pushed off of it, and it rocked, and it rocked forward and caught them in the heels and hit all the candelabras, and the candles went flying. And if you know, they're spring-loaded candles. They're not like real candles. They're like, they push the candles up, and so there's like candles, bing, 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 bing. Very first wedding I ever did. So, uh, hey... It's all part of it. You learn. You learn. So, uh, yeah, I just stood back there. We hadn't come out yet, and I stood back there with the groom, and I'm like, we're not going out right now. <laughs> my, one of my high school students, Scott Mesher, was running the sound, and he just walks down the aisle and starts picking up candles and walks off with them. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Marla, so good to see you. You doing good? We're glad you're here today. Um, just uh, thankful that we can do this right here in Pinheads. So thank you for being here today. We finished Second Thessalonians last week, or excuse me, First Thessalonians last week, and <clears throat> Paul's in Corinth. So we go back to Acts chapter eighteen. This is literally what we've been doing for over a year now. We spent almost two years going through the Gospels, and um, then we decided to just continue on with the story, so we picked up in Acts. Acts is the history book of the Bible after the cross, and we've followed Peter, and we've followed Paul, all the apostles uh, through this journey, but now Paul is on his second missionary journey. If I show you this map, very first verse in uh, Acts chapter 18, which we covered back on, we covered this the first three verses back on May 31st, right before we started 1 Thessalonians. But it says in verse 1, after this, he left Athens and went to Corinth. So uh, if you look at the map, sorry, Jim, flying back and forth. Uh, the Thessalonica is at the top left corner of the map. And then if you come down south, where it says Achaia, it's kind of like pronouncing that hurricane this week. It's fun watching the weather people pronounce whatever the name of that hurricane is. Uh, but you see Corinth there at the bottom. He just went from Thessalonica to Berea to Athens to Corinth. And basically what's happened is he's gone into all these cities telling them that Jesus is the Messiah. First to the Jews, he would go to the synagogues and say, to the Jews who believe that the Messiah is coming and that the Messiah is going to be their rescuer, their superhero that, that comes in and saves the day for the Jews because they've basically been persecuted all these years by the Egyptians and Babylonians and everybody else. So they expect their Messiah to be like this macho, cape-wearing, horse-ridden dude. And it's Jesus who's born in a manger and he's the son of a carpenter, and he's Jewish, and all these things, uh, this isn't what we expected. And so 
Paul's come along and said, yes, he is the Messiah. He's the one. And so he begins teaching Jesus to the Jews. He's the Messiah. And they basically kick him out of every city because there's people that think that Jesus is not the Messiah. And then there's people that agree that Jesus is the Messiah. And then there's this unrest in the area, and Paul gets booted out. He got booted out of Thessalonica. He ends up in Corinth, and Timothy stayed in Thessalonica for a while, came back and told him, hey, here's the issues going on, and we've covered that over the last six, seven weeks, last couple of months, when he wrote this letter to the church at Thessalonica. So now we're back in chapter 18 of Acts. I said that we covered, we covered the first three I'll just quickly remind you that Corinth, where he is currently, probably has about 200,000 people as their population. If Fishers, right here, this just Fishers, is 95,000. So Corinth has got almost double, definitely double the size of what Fishers is. And it would not be the easiest place to start a church because it's probably one of the more liberal, left-sided. They, uh, had, they had so many different gods, sex gods and food gods, and just it was kind of running amok in Corinth. And so it would have been a very difficult place for Paul, who left Silas and Timothy back in Thessalonica, and he's there by himself. He's literally got run out of all these different cities, and now he's coming to Corinth, this huge city, trying to tell him about Jesus by himself. Think about that for a second. But uh, he found a home there, which, which is good. In verse 2 it says, Where he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy, and with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. So basically, Aquila and Priscilla have been kicked out of Rome. They've left, and they've found a place in Corinth. What you need to know, the main story about Aquila and Priscilla, is they were huge supporters of Paul and the message that he was bringing. Pastors need Aquila and Priscilla's in their ministry, where they support them, where they encourage them, especially when they're persecuted all the time. And it says, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome, they're there in Corinth. Paul came to them, and since they were of the same occupation, tent makers by trade, he stayed with them and worked. He was a Jewish rabbi, and rabbis did not accept money from their students, but they earned their way by practicing a trade, and Paul's trade was being a tent maker. It just so happened that one of the big athletic games of that time in 51 AD was happening there in Corinth. So people from all over Macedonia, Asia area were traveling to Corinth for these athletic games. And guess what? They needed places to stay. So it was profitable for tent makers at that time, which was both Paul and his two friends, Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, verse 4, it says this. 
he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade both Jews and Greeks. Both Jews and Greeks. Jim, I didn't give you a copy, did I? All right, I'll leave that one there. I'm like, sitting there and flip that, and I'm like... Uh, it says, uh, let me read that again. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade both Jews and Greeks. Uh, that was the whole reason he came to Corinth, was to first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. That was Paul's ministry. When Silas and Timothy came after leaving Thessalonica and joined up with them, they brought him some financial aid from the previous churches and that enabled Paul to really devote most of his time in teaching the gospel, the message. He could not do the tent making because the people in the churches back in Thessalonica, back in Berea, back in all the other places provided this fund for him to be able to do what he's doing full time. Verse 8, it says this, When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself to preaching the word and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. Silas and Timothy joined up with Paul in Corinth. This is literally when Timothy said, Hey, here's what's happened in Thessalonica. And he sat down, Paul sat down, and he wrote this letter, that first letter to Thessalonica. But again, it says he's testifying to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. Verse 6, when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his clothes and told them, your blood is on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Let's look at the word blaspheme. Blaspheme literally means to speak against someone in such a way as to harm or to injure him or her, their reputation. And this is literally what the Jews have done. They have, watch this, they have blasphemed Paul. Not Jesus, not God, but Paul. They're insulting Paul and the message and his reputation that's a big deal to understand. Because remember in 1 Thessalonians, when he's writing them, he spends almost that first two, three chapters talking about his integrity. Because the Jews didn't believe that he had any authority whatsoever. And then he used that verse, he shook out his clothes and, and told them, your blood is on your own heads. I am innocent. He's literally taking that verse from the prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament. Look at Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 18. Ezekiel says this, If I say to the wicked person, you will surely die, but you do not warn him, you don't speak out to warn him about his wicked way in order to save his life. That wicked person will die for his iniquity. Yet I will hold you responsible for his blood. But if you warn a wicked person and he does not turn from his wickedness or his wicked way, he will die for his iniquity, but you will have rescued yourself. Paul is literally saying, hey, look, you all are wicked. 
Pharisees, Jews that are saying Jesus isn't the Messiah, that you've blasphemed me, that you've ruined, your rep- you ruined my reputation. I am literally washing my hands of this. We also know that this happened right before Jesus was put on the cross. I wash my hands of this. You think about Paul, and honestly, Matt, you uh, doing a wedding is doing a good thing for this couple. But any time that you do ministry, and especially whenever God is blessing a ministry, I don't know the sovereignty of God enough to understand how that works. That's why he's God and I'm not. But when God blesses a ministry, I guarantee you that you can expect increased opposition as well as increased opportunities. Just camp, camp was a great example of that. We knew God was going to do some great things at camp with our students because of this whole pandemic thing and just being away with the kids and being able to focus. But I'm telling you what, there was a battle getting there, there was a battle there, and there was a battle when we got home. And that's because God was planning on doing good things. And any time that you do ministry, I guarantee you that you are going to face opposition but there will also be incredible opportunities that come along with it. And this is what Paul is dealing with right here. He's facing persecution from his fellow Jews, and they have blasphemed him. Verse 7 says this, So he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justice. In some translations it will say Gaius. Gaius Titus Justice. A worshiper of God. That would be a Jew a worshiper of God, Jews worship God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. That even tells me more that he's a Jew if he's built his house right next to the synagogue. A Roman citizen named Gaius Titus Justus is brought to Christ as well. Well, it's not that all the Jews denied him. Some accepted him, obviously. Gaius is this well-to-do, God-fearing man with a large home that's located right next to the synagogue. They believe that he could have housed like 50 to 60 people in his house. Is that big. And being next door to the synagogue, that gives you some kind of indication that Paul hadn't literally given up on the Jews yet. He stayed in that area in hopes that they would hear. Verse 8, it says, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord. Wait, the leader of the synagogue? The main Pharisee? He even came to believe Jesus? Along with his whole household, many of the Corinthians, when they heard, believed and were baptized. Because Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, came to know Jesus as his Messiah, All of a sudden, everybody around began listening to what Paul's message was and began to believe as well. He was the ruler, and his household right there next to him converted and were baptized along with some others. They believed that Paul probably only baptized Crispus and his family, and then that family 
and Silas and Timothy baptized all the others. It was now Paul's custom to plant churches and to literally disciple and ground these Corinthians on nothing but Christ and his cross. He tells them stories about the churches that he's been to and the perseverance that they've had to go through, the struggles that they've gone through. The, and like, hey, don't think that it's going to be any different for you right here in Corinth. The body of Jesus Christ is now present in the church in Corinth. And it's expressing the nature of God in this very city. He's doing everything that he can to encourage them right there in Corinth. Verse 9, it says, this is awesome. Then the Lord said to Paul in a night vision, the Lord said to Paul in a night vision, don't be afraid, but keep on speaking and don't be silent. For I am with you and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you because I have many people in this city. That's red letters in my Bible. In other words, this is what Jesus was saying to Paul. Hey, I'm with you, I'm for you. You go back to Matthew, the last thing that Jesus said before he ascended into heaven. He says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus. Therefore, go and baptize, disciple. And the very last part of that says, and lo, I'm with you always. I'm always with you. Literally, he is with you right now, sitting here. We are in the presence of Jesus right here in this place. It's just like our Lord to speak to us when we need him the most. That's what happened to Paul. Paul had been blasphemed by his own fellow Jews and the Lord spoke to him. Think about this. He wakes up in the middle of the night with his vision. He says, fear not. He says to you in this room right here, fear not. I'm here to calm your storm. I'm here to make this easier for you. I'm here so that you can have abundant life. He Think about it. He did this with Abraham in Genesis. He did this with Isaac in Genesis. He did this with Jacob in Genesis. As well as Jehoshaphat in Second Chronicles. As Dan, into Daniel in Daniel. And to Mary in the book of Luke. His own mother. And Peter, he's done this in the book of Luke. He's literally said over and over throughout Scripture, Genesis, through right now this current book that we're in, he's like, don't fear. There's a lot of thoughts going through your head right now that you cannot control. But know this, I'm with you. The next time that you feel alone, The next time you feel alone and defeated, I would say this, meditate on God's word. You can look at Hebrews 13.5. Let me read to you Isaiah 43. Verse 1, it says this. 
Now this is what the Lord says. The one who created you, Jacob, and the one who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You're mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And the rivers will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, and the flame will not burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, and your Savior. I have given Egypt as a ransom for you, Cush and Seba in your place, because you are precious in my sight and honored, and I love you. I will give people in exchange for you and nations instead of your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from far away and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who bears my name and is created for my glory, I have formed them. Indeed, I have made them. You can literally sit here and read the Word of God in the midst of your isolation, your loneliness, your defeat, and see that He's never left you. Some of you just needed to hear that today. Then verse 11, he said this. He stayed there a year and a half, 18 months, teaching the word of God among them. Just as a token of thanksgiving for his promise, we know, and as a promise of protection, we know that Paul lets his hair grow out as part of a voluntary Nazarite vow. Paul lets his hair go long. You'll hear that in a little bit. So now 18 months has gone by since he's written this letter. He stayed in Corinth this whole time, ministering and disciple to the new believers, the new body of Christ there in Corinth. We come along to the spring of 52 AD. This is approximately 20 years still after Jesus was crucified on the cross. And while Paul is laboring in Corinth, he gets word that the Thessalonica believers back in received his letter received his letter, but now there's confusion. The church mistakenly believes that the day of the Lord is at hand. Still, what he discussed in the first letter, some still are quitting their jobs and refusing to work. Some are still having moral issues. Some are still having questions, and they're having too much time on their hands, and these individuals are becoming busybodies in the lives of others. it's almost like uh, this letter travels back to Paul via Facebook in a neighborhood association group. If you know what I'm talking about. They're sitting there reading this and there's just all these issues and questions and need clarifications and people are upset. So Paul's like, okay, I'm going to sit here and write one more letter to the church at Thessalonica. So he sits down and he writes... Second Thessalonians, from Corinth. 
And again, he's trying to miscorrect, he's trying to correct their misunderstandings about the day of the Lord and Christ's return and all these things that, if you think about it, we have this Bible right here and it's many translations, many languages and everything like that. They had a letter that was transposed several different times. I'm positive that there was some confusion as they sat there and read that letter. So he ends up correcting the questions and the statements in this letter. But again, Paul ends up encouraging the whole church not to become weary in doing well. I would say 2 Thessalonians is kind of the cliff notes of 1 Thessalonians. He pretty much repeats himself. He does the same thing. He, has a, a, he talks about his integrity for a line or two, but then he goes into a thanksgiving. Then he talks about them being persecuted, and then he clarifies the day of the Lord, the coming of the Lord in the end. So let's quickly try to get into Second Thessalonians. This, this will only take us a couple of weeks because it's, it's very much a repeat of the First Thessalonians. But he says uh, in verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy... Paul uh, says who the letter is from first, really to show authority. If it was uh, written by a king or royalty, they would probably, uh, written to them, they would probably put their name first. But Paul's put his name first just to show that he has authority to who his audience is, which is the church. He says, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Our is being inclusive. He's saying we believe in the same God, the same message, the same Messiah. This is our God and Lord Jesus Christ. I'm writing to you who believe in God and Jesus as the Messiah. Verse 2, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, as Paul's done throughout his letters, grace first, if you have grace you're going to have peace. Peace being shalom. That was their introduction as they met and their goodbye as they left. And then, quickly, let me just read to you the first chapter. He says, We ought to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, since your faith is flourishing and the love each one of you has for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you among God's churches, about, our, about your perseverance and faith and all the persecutions and afflictions that you are enduring. That was his commendation from the beginning right there. And then he goes into this. It is clear evidence of God's righteous judgment that you will be counted worthy of God's kingdom for which you also are suffering, since it is just for, God, just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted along with us. This will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels, when he takes vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God, on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus." They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from this glorious strength on that day when he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be marveled at, at by all those who have believed.
because our testimony among you was believed. This was an introduction. He's going to talk more about it in this letter. But this was a foreshadowing of what he is going to talk about. That was supposed to be the comfort paragraph for him. Because they're worried about God's wrath. And he's like, look, if you're a believer in Jesus, you're good. You don't have to worry about this. He's trying to comfort them in a small paragraph, even though it covers the judgment. And then verse 11, it says, In view of this, we always pray for you that our God will make you worthy of his calling. And by his power, fulfill your every desire to do good and your work produced by faith, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified by you and you by him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first chapter. It's literally taking a thanksgiving prayer and placing it as the introduction. Hasn't really answered their questions. Hasn't really done anything. It's just a foreshadowing of what he's about to write. You see, that last part right there was, was kind of the challenge it was a challenge for them to keep doing what you're doing, keep walking in the Spirit. Now, that first chapter, it did three things. First of all, I clearly see as a pastor where Paul was expressing his pastoral role to the church. It's evident that Paul loved the people. He called them brothers and sisters. He was encouraging them in their faith. He was discipling them in their faith. He was explaining things. And then it says, hey, we pray for you. We pray for you. My wife was up all night last night praying for Trish and her dad. Talking with her. Consoling her. That's what we do. Not just... Not just pastors, but that's what we do as a body. And then also in that chapter, it was a foreshadowing of his exhortation. When, when he says that, he says, your faith is flourishing and you're encouraging one another. He's not only encouraging them in what they've done, but he's exhorting them to continue in that. If this is good, then you probably need to keep doing that. He's literally saying, keep encouraging one another, keep loving one another, keep doing things for one another. Do good works, not out of your own strength, but those that are produced by faith. And then Paul also mentions as an encouragement, but also a desire for them to continue. He's just affirming their positive strengths. That's all he's doing. Keep doing what you're doing. And then, of course, the third thing that he's done here is he's foreshadowed his conversation with them about how he deals with judgment. So what Paul has done here in this first chapter, we'll get to the, there's only two more chapters after this, so we get through Second Thessalonians pretty quick. But he's dealing with issues. Issues that uh, they're struggling with physically and how they live their life. 
struggling with political issues, struggling with cultural issues, and they're all asking questions. And here's what Paul does in his letter. I give you a little taste. Jesus is the Messiah. You stay focused on Jesus. If you stay focused on Jesus, all these issues that are about you in society and politics and culture, they will handle their self. You stay focused. Jesus is the Messiah. Keep loving one another. Keep encouraging one another. Keep doing things for one another. Just keep on praying for one another. Be the body of Christ. And I promise you, your statement about what you believe on each of these issues will be evident. That word is good for today. I promise you. I get challenged. Are you being silent about this? Are you being silent about this? Are you being silent about this? Are you being silent? No, I'm not being silent. I'm being very vocal about my Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives inside of me. He sent me a a paraclete, a, a Holy Spirit that lives inside of me, and he teaches me, and he directs me, and I listen to him, and I obey him. I do as he Sometimes I get caught up in my flesh. I get it. I'll blow it. My own strength. My focus is Jesus. As a pastor, I'm going to encourage you to stay focused on Jesus. That's it. There's so many issues I could talk about. Paul does that a little bit. But he says stay focused on Jesus. So Lord... Man, we are living in a world that is just totally upside down from what we once knew. And we can get so caught up on many different things. And I just believe it's a spiritual attack to get our focus off of you. So I'm going to trust you with what we've just read today and what Paul's dealing with and the church and not only Thessalonica but Corinth and everywhere else that uh, as long as we stay focused on you, we can walk with joy, we can walk with peace, we can have patience, we can walk without fear, we can have respect and love for one another. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.